Hello, I'm Max Easterman and this is your Guardian Daily for Thursday the 18th of February. Today, the Labour Party's plans to revolutionise how much council tax people pay by giving them rebates for services rendered. Certainly what we are seeing is uh, something people probably couldn't have predicted a year ago, which is you could have the co-op principle being the centre of a general election campaign. Gordon Brown says he'll carry out a full investigation into how forged British passports were used in the assassination of a Hamas leader in Dubai. Uh, we're looking at this at this very moment because the evidence has got to be assembled about what has actually happened and how it happened and, and why it happened. Another French wine scam. But why didn't the victims, one of America's oldest wine companies, taste the difference? What's hugely amusing about it is, of course, it's an American company. You know, it shouldn't be called Gallo Brothers. It should be called Gullible Brothers. And with China selling billions of dollars' worth of U.S. Treasury bonds, we ask whether Washington should be worried. The Labour Party is planning to rebrand the South London borough of Lambeth as the first co-op-style council. The idea is that residents will be given the chance to help deliver local services, and in exchange they could get a council tax rebate. The scheme's modelled on mutual organisations like the John Lewis Partnership. Our political correspondent, Allegra Stratton, is in Westminster. Allegra, can you tell us a bit more about this idea? How's it supposed to work? What Lambeth are wanting to do is give people in their council area the right to band together for, for instance, all of them taking over of the local primary school or a short start or a youth club or etc, etc. So that would mean that what you'd have is rather than the council providing it and giving it to you and shoving it down your throat, you would actually be involved in the decisions that that ran it. Um, But also what they've been able to see in the limited application of this already in, for instance, nurses being allowed to do this, is that it does actually save money, believe it or not. Because if you have nurses or if you have people providing a service who are actually involved in the running of that service rather than sort of passive participants in a service, then they start to get, for instance, more angry when they see waste or they get more angry when they see slack. But what this particular council wants to do is turn it into a sort of the mutual principle, turn it into a driving force for the area. Uh, and that would mean, as I've just said, it would mean you could ballot to be able to take over. But it would also extend to other things like, for instance, this is this is this would be informal. But what they found is there was some derelict land that a community wanted to sort of spruce up because it was attractive. It was where prostitutes happened to be doing their business. And the local community said, well, the council said to the local community, well, look, here you go. Here's a skip and here's some equipment. And they did it. And that cost 300 quid. And the council leader, Steve Reed, said to me, if the council themselves had done that well it would cost multiples of that so could this be seen as perhaps a cynical way of reducing yeah. costs which have to be reduced anyhow because of the dire economic situation indeed we're in? yeah i mean he steve rude would say it's not cynical it's a fact you they know and uh, the tory tory barnett council is also uh, has come up with a different solution to the same problem which is they know that the, the amount that they will receive from central government will fall by 20 percent that everybody knows there will be there is straightened public finances on the horizon and so you have to look at it with 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 uh, sort of ingenious solutions um in barnet they've decided that they will run 
what some people are calling a two-tier service. If you want uh, basic services, you've got them, but if you want the extras that council provide at the moment, then you will have to pay a bit more. And Steve Reid has said, I don't want to do that. What I want to do is um, change the entire way we provide everything and hope that the, the, the research that's shown that there could be there can be savings made uh, is borne out in Lambeth. David Cameron, the Tory leader, was talking earlier this week about similar co-op operations Mm. for schools or hospitals or health Mm. authorities and so on. So, I mean, are we seeing two very Mm. similar schemes here or is there a fundamental difference? There is a big difference. I mean, certainly what we are seeing is uh, something people probably couldn't have predicted a year ago, which is you could have the co-op principle being the centre of a general election campaign, which is really, I think if you'd have asked most political commentators a year ago whether that would come to pass, they wouldn't have thought so. I think on the Tory plans, for, for me, they are very explicit that what they'll let public sector workers do is form co-ops uh, together. But what they haven't gone for is employees and users and that's the other thing that Labour are sort of quite keen for for observers like ourselves to 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 look at which is if you want a if you want an a worker or employee-led cooperative think back to the last time they were sort of uh, high profile and that's probably the, the 70s and it wasn't actually a, a brilliant a brilliant um, exercise. Gordon Brown says he'll hold a full inquiry into the allegation that six British citizens had their identity stolen by the Israeli security service Mossad. Forged passports were used by the team who assassinated Mahmoud al-Mabouh, a Palestinian understood to have close links to Hamas. But Israel is denying involvement in the killing. Rory McCarthy is our Jerusalem correspondent. So, Rory, how has news of this inquiry been received in Israel? Well, this could potentially be quite problematic for the Israeli government. I mean, we should be clear to say that the the Israelis have not admitted that they were behind this assassination in Dubai last month. They don't generally talk about the activities of the Mossad, their foreign intelligence service. And they've been very careful not to give any indication that the Mossad was involved. But if the British government feels that there is enough evidence to suggest some kind of Israeli link... Uh, then there could be quite a a difficult uh, diplomatic issue here for Israel. Relations with Britain are not good at the moment, particularly over attempts to have uh, arrest warrants uh, secured against uh, Israeli ministers for alleged war crimes. Uh, And this is going to make it more difficult. In the past, Israel has run into complications with other countries involving uh, forged passports used by Mossad agents. It happened once in 1997 with Canadian passports. It happened again in 2004 uh, in an attempt to get hold of a New Zealand passport. Um, So I think Israel's facing the possibility of a, a diplomatic row like that. So do you think that they would cooperate with any investigation by presumably the Foreign Office? I mean, they would have to actually carry out at least part of that in Israel or with the Israeli authorities. It's very difficult to say at the moment. If they're not prepared to admit any involvement, uh, and the Israeli Foreign Minister, Avigdor Lieberman, has been saying that there's no evidence to suggest the Mossad was involved, then it's hard to see how they would be able to take part in any investigation. The, The other problem that Israel faces that's perhaps a bit more pressing is that at least seven Israeli citizens uh, who have uh, joint citizenship, dual citizenship, appear to have had their identities stolen as part of this operation. And their names appear on 
the passports that were released by the Dubai police as part of their investigation, which, is, which were used by the suspects involved in the assassination. There's some criticism about this in Israel today. The individuals themselves who've had their identity stolen are furious and scared. And I think that the government might face more pressure on this front rather than on the diplomatic front with Britain. So how is this story then being uh, interpreted in the wider Israeli community, in the press, for example? What are the commentators saying about it? Are they supporting the Israeli government? Some are, and some are being critical. Um, there's one commentator writing in Haaretz, uh, a writer called Yossi Melman, who is a recognized specialist on these sorts of security issues, um, who says that Mossad is likely to emerge uh, unblemished at the moment unless there's a definitive proof of an Israeli connection. And so far, there is no definitive proof yet. But there are others who've been saying that the head of Mossad should resign and take responsibility for this, that it's not acceptable that Israeli citizens, innocent Israeli citizens, have become entangled in this international investigation and that there does seem to have been a blunder and that there, there are questions being asked about why this points back to Israel, why the, uh, why the suspects uh, in this case used identities that were stolen from Israeli citizens. Rory McCarthy in Jerusalem. And you can read more on this at guardian.co.uk slash Israel. It was supposed to have the dark fruit aromas and flavours of black cherry and ripe plum. But French wine producers have been convicted of selling millions of bottles of fake wine to the American firm E&J Gallo. 18 million bottles, to be exact. The French claimed they were shipping wine made from Pinot Noir, that's the famous grape of Burgundy, and it's very popular in the United States. But the wine was coming from Languedoc in the south of France, and Languedoc produces very little Pinot Noir. This isn't the first wine scandal on French soil, but what's unusual about this one is that the wine was sold to a famous and long-established company. I asked wine expert Malcolm Gluck, the man who coined the name Superplonk, if he was surprised about what had happened. No, not at all, because the French, well, Europe generally, but particularly France, has had a, a history for, for decades, or I was going to say almost centuries, of doctoring wines, that wines which claim to be one thing turn out to be something else. So it's, there's nothing particularly original in this story. The only original thing is the fact that the customer was an American company, not another French company. Could you just fill us in, just add a bit of detail about perhaps one or two of the other scams which have happened? Well, for years, the, uh, the, I mean, the French fought so bloodily to hold on to Algeria because the, well, many reasons, but one of the, one of the reasons was that it was, it was a source of cheap, big red wine to boost weaker wines in, in the north of France, particularly Burgundy and, and towards the south. Bordeaux. I mean, there, there are many, it's been going on for years and years and years that, that French wine in, in poor harvests had to find a way to, 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 to get uh, uh, more alcohol. If they didn't add sugar, they often just added wine from elsewhere. And so, you know, it, it's very common, has been very common. It's not so widespread now. This is what they used to refer to as bone setter reds from the south, I think. Absolutely, and when they were added to these wines, they were they were what is called vin de médecin. In other words, they would there were wines which were used to doctor the, the other wines. So there's there's nothing particularly new in this. What's hugely amusing about it is, of course, that it's uh, 
it's an American company. They shouldn't be called Gallo Brothers. It should be called Gullible Brothers because of all red wine varieties, one of the most easiest to spot in the glass simply on the nose is Pinot Noir. One imagines that they would have at least had a taste of tasting the wine as it came in. Well, maybe not. I don't know. One would assume that they would have to have some sort of professional on board who, who, would, who would taste, smell and analyse the wine in a proper way. Apart from anything else, they run it through a laboratory test just to see, to see what it is. And of course, this wine comes from an area which is not known for Pinot Noir. So uh, immediately one would be suspicious that that amount of Pinot Noir could be grown in an area not known for it. What effect do you think this is going to have on the French wine industry? I mean, the Languedoc, where this wine came from, Mm. in the south of France, has had um, a pretty rough time with its wine because... It's not been up to snuff recently. Well, and I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that, that statement, actually. I think that Languedoc is the most exciting wine area in France. It's producing some of the most interesting red and white wines in the whole country. The problem has been that it's, it's been undervalued. In fact, I don't think this will have any effect on, on the reputation of, of the area. I don't think it will have any effect on the, uh, the image or reputation of French, French wine, because this, was, this will be regarded as something that, you know, it was Americans and they're fairly stupid. They didn't know what they were doing. They, they should have been known that this couldn't have been legitimate 100% Pinot Noir. So, you know, they were fools waiting to be taken to the cleaners. Malcolm Gluck there. And you can get detail of that story at guardian.co.uk slash France. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Samantha Morton's first film as a director is Unloved and it's released this week. Unloved is about Lucy, an 11-year-old girl who's taken into care. It's based on Morton's own experiences in care when she was a child. Jason Solomons is the Observer's film critic. He spoke to Samantha for this week's Film Weekly podcast about her career in the movie industry. I spent nearly all of my life on a film set. So from the age of 12, when I was doing extra work for Murphy's Marb or Wharf, or this thing about a boy with a dog and, you know, nicking the sandwiches and taking them back to the children's home, you, uh, you know, I, I've always watched and I've always asked questions and I've always said to people, what's your favourite film? What's your favourite film? And I've learnt on the job. I've learnt how to act. And I think I've learnt, in a way, um, just, just the, how it all works. Not how to do it, but how it all works. So I will know what everyone does on a set. Obviously, some actors haven't got a bloody clue. They turn up and they, you know, where's my light, darling, kind of thing, and, and what's the scene all about? And I, I've always been interested and, and I've, in that, and I've always felt a bit... I, do, I get butterflies when I hear a camera going. With a real film camera, I get really funny feelings in my tummy, and, and sometimes that's about nerves, and, but most of the time it's because I get so excited. Like, I can't tell you. You can hear the full interview with Samantha Morton in this week's Film Weekly podcast. And you can also read Jason Solomon's interview with her in the all-new Observer Review section this Sunday. The latest financial figures show that China's been selling large numbers of US Treasury bonds, over $32 billion worth. These are, in effect, IOUs from Washington, and China has traditionally held a lot of them. But is it now getting cold feet? The Observer's economics editor is Heather Stewart. 
Well, um, we should be careful not to read too much into just one month's figures, but we do know that China has repeatedly expressed concern in in recent weeks and months, and really ever since the credit crunch began, um, about the depreciation in the dollar and about Washington's apparent failure to to put forward any solid policies for dealing with its enormous uh, deficit, which is is looking like being about one and a half trillion dollars this year, which is is pretty extraordinary, really. That's that's the cost of uh, bailing out the U.S. banks and and dealing with a, a, a massive recession. President Obama has said just yesterday that he has saved a second depression by the measures he's taken, but has he perhaps put America in hock to the rest of the world in a Uh, an unacceptable way by so doing? Well, America already was very much in hock to, particularly to China, but also to other investors, uh, Japan, for example. America has been living beyond its means for for a long time now and had been running extraordinary um, deficits year after year after year. So America already owed uh, hundreds of millions of dollars to China. It now owes well over a trillion dollars. So this is a, a sort of economists call it global imbalances. This is the sort of China has a a big surplus, the US has a big deficit. This is something that's been going on for a long, long time. And and economists have been warning that it it can't go on forever. And it's probably unsustainable, but but no one's quite been able to say how it will unwind. And and every time we get a piece of news like this, it, it makes people a little bit nervous that this is, you know, perhaps a signal that China is losing confidence. And, and you know, China these days is America's paymaster. So, so you know, it, it has significance for all of us, really. So how do you think Washington's going to react to this news? Well, Washington has already been seeking to reassure China. So the US Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner, for example, went to Beijing last summer and made very soothing noises about, you know, we are aware of the fact that we do need to do something about our deficit. We, we have, you know, we do have plans. And, you know, Obama did talk about freezing some areas of spending in his recent budget that he presented to Congress. But um, I do think just as, as the UK government has to give a convincing plan to the financial markets that it, it's ready to deal with its deficit. And if it doesn't, it risks not being able to sell its bonds and interest rates rising. The US actually, although it's the world's biggest economy, is in a similar situation. And this is just a, a little straw in the wind, perhaps, that shows that some of those those potential buyers of, of US debt out there might be starting to become a, a little bit nervous. Heather Stewart, The Observer's economics editor. That's it for today. Guardian Daily was produced by Phil Maynard. I'm Max Easterman. Thanks for listening and enjoy your day.